Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining, joining us and celebrating World IP Day. My name is Andrew Krauss. I co-founded InventRight with Stephen Key over 21 years ago. We've been coaching and mentoring inventors ever since. We have students in over 65 countries. And we do these Q&As every Monday, but today we have a very special guest, and his name is Jim Malinkowski. Malikowski. He's the CEO of Ocean Tome. I'm going to introduce him a little bit later. And him and myself are going to be answering your intellectual property questions in honor of World IP Day. IP, for those of you that are brand new, stands for intellectual property, which is basically patents, copyrights, trademarks, even trade secrets come under intellectual property. But before I introduce Jim, I want to thank Rachel and Jelani and everyone from the Michelson Foundation for helping to promote and set up this event in honor of World IP Day. The, this Q&A is about intellectual property. It's a special session powered by the Michelson Institute for Intellectual Property in celebration of World IP Day. The Michelson Institute for IP is a nonprofit organization, and they're founded by a very prolific inventor, Dr. Gary Michelson, that is doing a ton of great work around IP education nationally. We highly recommend you checking out their free online course and ebook. Someone from the Michelson Foundation is going to be posting a link to that in the chat sometime soon. We've had to move from that stream to a different stream because we have a technical problem. So I know some of you are going to be joining a little bit later here. Um, they're also going to be the Michelson Foundation sponsoring a raffle um, of $100 to, uh, to and the attendee that presents during the session. Make sure, I think it's a gift card, I forget, but uh, to follow the link below in the description to sign up for that. And I think we're going to be announcing that towards the end for the people that are attending live. So Jim Malikowski, he's the CEO of Ocean Tomo, and myself, we're going to be answering your IP questions. Jim is a very unique company, and they actually spoke to my inventors group, I think it's over two decades ago. So I know they've been around for a long time. The inventors group I ran like eons ago. So... Jim, can you introduce yourself a little bit and tell us what you do since you're going to be um, answering a lot of these questions so they know a little bit about you? Absolutely, Andrew. Thank you for the invitation, and I'm thrilled to participate and recognize World IP Day. Ocean Tomo is really the second iteration of this business for me, and this business is financial services broadly related to intellectual property. So at our firm, we have about 65 professionals, and we value intellectual property. We help with strategy, and then we help to raise capital as an investment bank. You know, the way I describe it is anything you would want to do if you were selling your house, we can help you with your IP. We can get you an appraisal. We can find you a buyer. We can figure out what the best opportunity is for you. So who are the types of people that you're working with? I mean, if somebody has like a garlic press, is that appropriate? Or are you working with people like doing pharmaceuticals and high tech and different technology? Like who's your typical client? So... So it's all of the above. Um, we work with startups to mid-sized, large companies. We work with some of the largest companies in the world. We also have the privilege of working with governments and non-government organizations, largely on IP strategy for economic development. And depending upon who the client is, we have a particular service that may be most appropriate then. So for the inventor of the garlic press, we would have a different solution than we would for a Fortune 100 company that wanted to sell 500 patents in a technology area that's no longer core to their business. 
Right. Okay, cool. Cool. So I know a little bit about you. Um, we're going to try to focus on intellectual property because we are celebrating today. It is World Intellectual Property or IP Day. You always say IP if you guys want to sound smart. Say, you know, so this is my IP on it instead of patent, if you will. Now, most of the time when people are referring to IP, they're talking about patents. But intellectual property can be patents, copyrights, trademarks, even trade secrets. Right, Jim? Absolutely. And in fact, every patent starts as a trade secret. And so what we tell inventors or entrepreneurs, the most important thing is to document what you're creating and protect it at a minimum through agreements of confidentiality. The biggest mistake we see for those who have that aha moment is they run out and begin to tell people, tell potential investors, tell potential customers, and they really sacrifice some of their potential rights by doing that. So first, write it down. Second, keep it protected until you get good advice on how to monetize it. Okay, cool. Well, you so saw the Michelson Foundation, they had some from their folks, had some questions come on over from a bunch of inventors. So I'll jump on those before we jump into the Q&A. So type your questions in the Q&A. We're focusing on intellectual property day, patents, copyrights, trademarks, trade secrets, patents probably for the most part. But the first question is from Elizabeth. And what will be interesting today is Jim and I might have some different takes on it because we're coaching mentoring inventors from a very grassroots level to license their products. He's doing some very um, high level stuff with some big companies, but people of different levels as well. So we might have a different take on it, which will be interesting. So the first question is a very simple question from Elizabeth, very broad question, but it's totally your area of expertise, Jim. What is the best method for IP valuation? Ah, great question in part because there is no single best method. There are three generally accepted methods. And again, the analogy of how you would value your home is appropriate. So the first method is called the market approach. And that simply is look into publicly available records and see if there is a piece of intellectual property, a patent, for example, that is close enough to be a good benchmark. No different than if you wanted to know what your home is worth, you might look to see what the neighbor sold their house for. Okay. The, the second approach is called the income approach. And this is really focused on how much money can you expect to earn through the use or license of your patent. Again, to go to the real estate analogy, an apartment building is pretty much worth the rent that you can collect for it. And then the third approach is called the cost approach. And this is what it would cost someone to recreate the intellectual property or more likely create a design around that doesn't infringe upon your patent or trade secret or other IP, but accomplishes largely the same thing. Again, just to finish the analogy, you want to know what my house is worth? Well, what would it cost to go buy the bricks and mortar to recreate it? Got it. Got it. You know, I, when we're guiding people to license their products to big companies, we always say it's it, it's going to how much it's worth is going to depend on whatever deal you can get on the table. So let's say you reach out to 20 or 30 potential licensees and you get this company that let's say it's a consumer product and let's say it's a new shovel. OK. Or a new barbecue spatula, let's say that. I always, always use that example. So if they have distribution in Walmart and Home Depot and Lowe's and Amazon, it's kind of like they're going to do whatever they normally do. They're going to put it in those distribution channels. So it's whatever they can do with it. So if they have distribution at 30,000 stores and you get it at 30,000 stores, you can kind of value it and go, well, if they're going to put it in every Walmart and they're selling at least one unit per week per store, the value is whatever they can sell. But then there's some like minimum guarantees where, you know, maybe you don't get a company that's that big. You get another company that is only in 10,000 stores. Well, then that's what it's worth there. 
So it's whatever deal you can get on the table and whatever that company is capable of when you're licensing. So I like the, there's a potential for the market, but there's also when you're just licensing and that's your business model, what can the company you're going to license to do? And that's kind of what it's worth. You know, Andrew, there's two core elements that you raise in, in that description. One is, it's more than just the price or the royalty that you're paid. It is all about those minimums and the commitment that that licensing partner is going to make to promoting your invention or product. Because the last thing you want to do is strike an agreement that has a great royalty per unit, but no requirement that they actually market the product. And then you're tied up into a large company that does nothing for you. Right. And then the second thing is to understand if it's going to be an exclusive agreement where you can only deal with that one partner or a non-exclusive agreement where you can go and sell the same product over and over and over again, in which case there's much less concern about any particular company's investment because you can go to others if they fail to perform. Yeah, interesting. So we have another question from uh, an inventor that heard about this through the, the Michelson Foundation from Sankar. Hi, if I hold two Indian, this is probably more in your territory, if I hold two Indian pharmaceutical patents, one a truly path-breaking one, and a second patent, just a minor tweak, can you please suggest how to do I fix the licensing fee? So we kind of covered that a little bit, but pharmaceutical is, is kind of a whole other ball game, isn't it? I mean, well, it is, especially because now you're talking global. And so in our other analogies about the simple consumer product, we were basically thinking of the U.S. market and a right. U.S. patent. But if you've got patents in India that cover pharmaceuticals, what really matters in part is do you also have patents in Europe or Asia or the U.S. where you intend to sell? If you don't, what you're really protecting is the manufacturing cost structure that may be an opportunity in India. In other mm. words, if it can be manufactured there cheaper than any place in the world, then that patent may have significant value. If it could be manufactured just as cheaply in Puerto Rico, then the patent's not going to be worth very much because you can make it in Puerto Rico and sell it in the U.S. and Europe. And so people are going to try to avoid your fee. But to answer the question more particularly, if you have a core invention and an improvement invention, most often any licensee, so the licensor is the one with the patent, the licensee is the one who's your partner, they're going to want both. They're not going to want to miss out on the improvement, and they certainly would need the core invention if they're going to try to manufacture the product. You're in some industries that are very difficult, is my assumption. Um, you know, pharmaceuticals, difficult industry, um, packaging, you know, like a new toothpaste tube or something, because they're selling bazillions of units. You need to have a lockdown understanding of manufacturing and the intellectual property surrounding that manufacturing. Um, what other industries are really difficult where intellectual property is even more important, more difficult, and that you really do need to get patents outside the U.S.? Um, yeah, today, almost every industry will have its challenges. But where we're seeing the greatest interest in economic effort is in what we call consolidating platforms. So products where bunch of intellectual property from traditionally non-related goods and services are coming together. The most classic example of that is the smartphone. Remember, the phone used to be a phone, but today it's a phone, it's a camera, it's email, it's photographic storage. And all of those inventions historically were originated by different industries and had to come together. 
following the smartphone, we've seen the internet, where now it used to be just a source for for uh, typographical or typal data. Now it's photographics, it's videos, it's all sorts of additional technology. The next platform we see is the automobile. The automobile is really becoming an IT platform on four wheels. And so there's a lot of consolidating technology there. The other thing that makes those industries very complicated is because there's a global supply chain. So mm. manufacturers want to make sure that they can protect their product in all of the major markets. Yeah, I mean, I always say automotive aftermarket, huge, lots of companies, very approachable. But to try to license to one of the big automotive manufacturers, I joke, you might as well shoot yourself in the head right now. It's very, very difficult. Um, yeah. And, and so let's let's address like I have a question for you. Um, this thought that you come up with a product or an invention and you're going to get patents around the world, that's insanely expensive, isn't it? I mean, even very, very large companies don't do that. Can you speak to that for a minute or two? Sure. And it goes back to what we talked about before, which is when you have that great thought, that aha moment, first write it down. Write it down in as much detail as you can possibly imagine, including other ways to reach the same result, um, different ways to build the product. And then consider whether you should first file a provisional patent application, which is something you can actually do without a lawyer, though it's always good to consider legal advice. But for many individuals, that's your first defense. And that does two things. One, it gives you a stake in the ground and it gives you a timestamp of when you invent, invented the product. One of the recent changes in the law, especially in the U.S., is we went from a first to invent, who could prove that they did it earliest, to a first to file. So there's somewhat of a race to the patent office. So write it down, get a provisional file, and then you can talk to advisors or most patent lawyers will give you an hour of their time to kind of share uh, ideas and then make the decision if it's worth the investment to convert that provisional into a true filing. And if it's something you want to do just in your home country or you want to file what's called a PCT or a patent cooperation treaty mm -hmm. where you're protected in, in most countries around the world, though with each country you ultimately choose, the fees will go up. Yeah, and I just want to give a little disclaimer at the at, I should have given it at the beginning, but it doesn't matter that anything we share with you tonight is not considered legal advice. Please consult the services of an attorney before you move forward on anything. But in that respect, I did a whole YouTube video with an attorney about how and watch that video with Jake Ward on the InventRight YouTube channel if you're interested, but how kind of a U.S. provisional is kind of a bit of a and I'm not going into details here, guys. So you got to look at the details, but it's a bit of a quasi-international um, provisional patent application because the U.S. is part of the PCT, uh, Patent Cooperation Treaty. So if you file a U.S. provisional patent in some ways, I'm not going into the details, you can later file a PCT and then file internationally. And that's very in-depth and complicated and everything, but... What are your thoughts on that, Jim? Is it, it's you're, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right. So filing a PCT, which again, you can go to the USPTO website and there is, there's guidance there as to how to do that. That will buy you time. Yeah. That will assure your place in line and give you breathing room to go consult with those advisors and those lawyers. You know, the most disappointing experience is when you have an inventor who's been working diligently for a number of years and when they finally think they've perfected their idea and they go to the lawyer, the lawyer says, well, unfortunately, someone filed that patent 20 months ago 
and it's now shown up as a public document and there's really nothing you can do. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because once it goes public and it's been public for more than a year, whatever has been publicly disclosed, that's it. That's public domain. And that inventor who filed before you, they have rights, uh, even though you may have thought of it first. So you need to get your patent on file sooner rather than later. Now, one thing that we're always saying in InventRight is, yes, if something's been publicly disclosed for more than a year, whether it's an academic paper or it's on a YouTube video or it's been up on a website, you know, if, if no intellectual property has been filed, you know, you're toast after a year. But if you've got some improvement, you could always file intellectual property on that improvement, right? People, sure. don't, people don't talk enough about that. And maybe you know that, that yeah. that's absolutely right. And to clarify, it's if your idea you happen to publish or talk about it, you now start a separate clock. You have one year to get that filing done in the United States. But again, consult your lawyers. If you publicly disclose it before you file that provisional, you may have sacrificed some rights overseas. Mm -hmm. So it's yes. always best to get that timestamp on the provisional. Right. So um, if anyone from the Michelson Foundation wants to post a link to the education that the Michelson Foundation offers in the in the chat, that would be great. As well as for those of you joining late, because I know we switched the live stream, um, we are doing a raffle. The Michelson Foundation is doing a raffle. The link is down in the description. And I think we're going to announce that at the end. If we don't do that at the end, we'll post it in the description later, maybe tomorrow as to who the winner was. So um but so let's jump into another question here and then we'll jump with some questions we got ahead of time, some questions in the chat. Um, there was a question here from Jeff. Uh, can app ideas be patented? So what are your feelings about software and intellectual property, Jim? So the short answer to your question is yes, you can have software patents. The law in that space is evolving. So it's a little trickier um, to the extent that you have a consumer facing product <coughs> one element of intellectual property we haven't talked about is a simple domain name so if you've got an idea for a new app that has a, a, a brand associated with it or you're going to create a brand in addition to thinking about that early patent filing please go see what domain names are available and make sure you get that domain name that's going to be most descriptive of what you're trying to do because that will create value as well we have seen um, small startups, small companies who, when they go to monetize their invention, having the patent filing, having the domain name, having a trademark filing, that collective set of assets really starts to create value for them, especially with a mid-sized company that's looking to get into a new market. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, these days you can register a domain name for 7 to $12 quite often. So why, why not do it? Now, if it's a consumer product company, and they're, they got their own brand and stuff. They're probably not going to have a separate website for your product. But you never know. For 7 or $12, why the heck not? That's right. You know. Um, so I've got my take. I'm going to give an answer to this question from Caroline. And then I, you might have a different take. Uh, Caroline says, do you recommend assigning a trademark to the inventor or to the company? Um, so Caroline, when our InventRight students are licensing products to companies, um, brands, manufacturers. Um, we always recommend that they keep the provisional patent and any intellectual property in their name. And then the licensing contract is basically giving the licensee, the manufacturer, the rights to rent that intellectual property. 
And that way, if they default, um, you're not assigning it to the company that you're licensing it to. You can just send them and you, you want to try to help them work it out. Let's say they're faltering on selling the product. But if you need to, you can just send them a letter saying, look, you're not complying with the terms of the licensing agreement, which is the agreement that's basically renting or leasing the idea to some big company. And they don't have to reassign the intellectual property back to you. The world that Jim lives in, I, could, I wouldn't be surprised a lot of times they wouldn't be okay with that. The world that we live in with consumer products, we get away with that 99% of the time, believe it or not, Jim. No, and that's I understand and I agree, Andrew. There's really a continuum. If you are just if you are an individual with a good idea and a brand that you're going to license to one or more manufacturers, I completely agree. Keep that in your own name so that you can easily terminate or adjust those contracts. If, however, you're going to the next step and you're going to start a company that's going to utilize that intellectual property, you're going to sooner or later have to assign that to the company because when you go to seek investor capital, you're not going to get that investment unless all of the related rights to the business are consolidated into that platform. But oftentimes they don't get to that second stage because there's a successful licensing contract and that creates an income stream and that's all they need. Mm -hmm. So there are specific questions. Do you recommend assigning a trademark to the inventor or to the company? Um, if they don't have a company yet, then it, you could assign it to yourself and then later transfer yeah, it? Again, if you're, if you're simply creating an idea, you put a brand around it and you want to license that to a, a large company and that's the full scope of your business, keep it in your own name, keep control over it. If you are, however, going to try to create the product yourself, which is going to require outside investment, friends and family or institutions, then everything needs to be in the business because none of the sophisticated money is going to let you keep that in your own name because they'll recognize it as a valuable asset of the business, protecting their downside if the income stream doesn't develop. Yeah. Well, and for those of you joining late, we're celebrating World IP Day. So we're focusing on intellectual property questions, intellectual properties, patents, copy, copyrights, trademarks, even trade secrets. One big thing that we should share, Jim, with people with the trademarks that people, some people don't get, um, with a patent, you could not do anything with it and beat people over the head if you want to, if you have a lot of money, which is not easy to do, and say, no, you can't do that. You can't do that with a trademark, can you? You have to actually use it in commerce. That's right. You want to talk you know, a little I, about that? There's, there's um, two principles there, one that you did not mention, and this is so important. A patent does not give you the right to make the product. So if you come up with a great idea and you file a patent and the patent office gives you the patent for the blue spatula with the special handle, that does not entitle you to make that product because others may have patents that cover part of the handle or part of the spatula that would block you. Hmm. All a patent does is give you a right to exclude others from making the product. It's a negative right. That's very different than a trademark which you therefore, and a tr owner of a trademark, you have the right to make a product using that brand. But as you say, if you do not put that into commerce after a period of time, I believe it's three years, but ask the lawyers, um, it becomes public property. And for a while, we saw a cottage industry develop where they would look at old nostalgic brands that were dormant for three, four, five, ten 10 years, and they would go file a new trademark or intent to use trademark registration on them and open a new business as, you know, some store that you heard of with your parents. Yeah. And they had full right, full right to do that. I, uh, 
Yeah, I met a guy in the toy business at a toy fair that was doing just that. It was kind of crazy. Um, he he seemed a little hackish. But <laughs> it's a little hack. It's kind of a hackish thing to do. But, you know, like you said, yeah, they a, have a, that right if people want. There's a lot of goodwill in some of those old brands, especially some of those old consumer products. And people have tried to bring them back. You know, the most famous story in that regard related to Procter & Gamble toilet paper where they had two brands of toilet paper, they decided to consolidate into one brand. The other brand went dormant and someone picked it up, took it to a discount retailer, now selling the famous brand that you heard of before and made a lot of money doing it. And so you, you need to protect that brand. You need to use the brand in commerce to protect it. Good, good. This one is uh, one we got in advance from the Michelson Foundation who's sponsoring our Q&A today in honor of World IP Day. This is from Caroline. Uh, what do you believe are the biggest obstacles in obtaining a patent or a trademark as a small and a new brand? Larger brands are easily able to spend massive amounts of money on IP protection, which makes it hard for the small new. What's your recommendation for these small brands? So if somebody's, um, they're venturing the product, you know, invent right well about licensing, but we're really talking generally licensing, venturing, all of that today, Jim. So uh, what are the obstacles for a small company in getting a patent and a trademark? And any so, tips? Yeah, my tip for the small company is you will be shocked at how many things have already been patented with patents pending. And the number of times where I've had an inventor walk through my door thinking that they have, for the first time, solved the world's problem related to this or that, a quick search at the PTO website, you'll find patents that are often directly on point or at least partially on point, and then become a blocking matter for you. Mm. So the first advice I give anyone is really take the time, go to the patent office website, even use Google patents, and do searching. Look for other patents or look for the invention that you think you've created to make sure there's nothing else out there that is exactly the same or substantially the same. And if you spend an hour or two and can't find anything, then you've got something to think about. Hmm. Okay. This next one we also got in advance from Niha. If an invention has both design and patent components in it, how would you determine the novelty of that invention? You know, you're, you're very much part of your business is evaluating um, intellectual property. So I think you're a good one to answer this one, Jim. So there are two basic kinds of patents in the United States. There is a design patent and a utility patent. Um, when we think of patents generally like we've been talking, we're talking about the basic invention utility patent. Um, but there are patents that are covering, for example, the design of a piece of a furniture. And when you look to those patent files, what you essentially will see are drawings or photographs, and the patents just cover that image. If you tweak it um, any non-trivial amount, it'll likely fall outside the scope of that patent in that image. So to the question, if you have both a design element and you've got a creative util utility invention, you'll really want to think about filing both and you want to be protected both ways. Hmm. This is a great answer. And so we have another, uh, their username is Stealth. If you don't put their first name, you got to read the fun usernames. But Stealth says, I have a new product that has been in development over the last three years and it will be ready to be in the market in the next three or four months. I would like to have two separate utility patents for the same invention, 
with a combined design patent and possible individual components on design patents as well. Um, I'm interested in protection for both utility and design in the U.S., possible in Australia, U.K., um, et cetera. How would I go about implementation with respect to the timing? And is it a, well, anyway, so if my question for you, Jim, based on his is, question is, why would you do two patents? And when would you do two patents if you can roll it all into one? Because patents are expensive. Well, that's right. And frankly, by rolling it all into one, meaning write up one broad patent specification, then you can always go back to that specification and file additional claims that cover your invention generally or different elements of your invention. So maybe just to back up a little bit, there are at least four major parts of a patent. So you've got the initial bibliographical data describing you know, when the, who the inventors are, when the patent was filed, what prior art was considered. You've got the drawings of the invention. Then you've got the specification, which is the narrative description of what you've invented. And in many ways, that's the most important part. And at the very end of the patent, you have what are called the claims, where you'll work with the attorneys to take relatively short descriptions from that specification. And it's that claimed invention, which is what gives you the exclusionary power. And so what we recommend and what I think is typical practice is, again, in that first patent provisional or patent filing, put it all in there, and then you can break out different pieces as you move forward over, over time. And the, the best reason for doing that is cost management and to make sure you get the earliest date for as much as possible. Great answers, Jim. You know, you guys hear me every Monday coming on, so I really want to utilize Jim's expertise since he's on with us. So thank you so much, Jim. Um, Rachel from the Michelson Foundation got another uh, question uh, from to, that was directed to her. So I'll read that off. I don't know the name of the person, but um, this person wrote, wrote, getting IP certification for inventions are expensive. So can IP certification of an invention be gotten for online space so the ownership cuts across international borders. So this is an area I'm not familiar with, Jim, because what we what we say to our invent rights students is it's worth whatever you can get for it. So if you license it to a really big company, you're going to earn more money because they're going to sell more. If you have to settle for a smaller company, it's whatever you can get for it. So we when people say, well, tell me how much it's worth. Is it worth, you know, quarter million dollars, half a million dollars, hundred thousand dollars, two million dollars? You know, it's whatever you can get for it over time. And so we do really simple things like, well, if they're in all the Walmart stores and they sell at least one unit per week per store, maybe they sell five. You could kind of use three um, numbers when you're licensing. It's the royalty rate, the price of the product. Is it a 99 cent product? Is it a $500 product? Are you getting a 5% royalty? You're getting a 10% royalty. What is it? 2%, whatever it is. And then the volume being sold. So it's all relevant between those three things, royalty rate, price of the product, are they selling a half million units a year, 20,000 units a year, 2 million units a year. So, but you come from a different world than we do. So tell us in your world about what is IP evaluate, evaluation and how does that work and certification too. I don't even know what that means. Yeah. And, and, and Andrew, before I get to the value question, let me uh, go back to the question you read and give sort of my understanding of it. What I, what I heard you ask is is it possible to get an IP certification on a internet-based patent? So if I somehow got a patent on something that was online, 
then that means since you can access the internet all over the world, I've got global protection. No, it does not work that way. A patent covers um, make, well, first of all, patents are national only. So a US patent only covers what happens in the United States, generally speaking, a, a German patent only in Germany, a Japanese patent only in Japan, et cetera. And it can generally cover if you make, use, sell, or offer to sell a product or service that's covered by the claims of that patent. Mm -hmm. So if you have a patent in the United States that is a product that you sell online or a service online, even though in Germany someone can pull up your website, a German company could make the same product in Germany and sell it in Germany, and it would not infringe the US patent, and you couldn't get that global protection without filing in Germany. Thank you. It's such a basic intellectual property concept that you're protected in the countries in which you have patents. And you picked out a very small part of that question and articulated that very, very well. And I, I think there's a lot of people listening. They're still, they're a little new to intellectual property and they're, they're not quite getting that. You know, right. a patent only protects you in the country in which you have it. Right. And protecting your idea around the world, like, to have this Superman, Iron Man, kryptonite protection is is a little, I'll just say it, delusional, even and for it, large it, companies. Yeah, and it's ineffective and expensive. So even the largest companies in the world choose carefully the jurisdictions where they file a patent, and they tend to file them in the major markets. In our business, there's what's called the Big Five, which is the U.S., Europe, Japan, Korea, and China. And then they selectively file elsewhere in the world. And the reason for that is twofold. One, other markets aren't as big. But importantly, the legal system in other markets may not be as strong. So even if you get a patent, it's hard to enforce. Or if you can enforce it, it's hard to collect damages. So in many ways, it's not really worth having. So when you think about where you're going to file, think about the size of the market and think about the strength of the legal system behind that patent. Mm. Yes. And it varies from country to country dramatically. Yeah. I mean, in some let, let's just talk about it. In, in some countries, is intellectual property worth dramatically less? I, I was going to use the word worthless, but in some countries, it's it's close to worthless, isn't it? For depending on who it, you it are. Is, and in fact, there there is an annual index that's put out that rates the strength of a given national patent system. And for years and years, the U.S. has been in the top 10. It's sort of moved around a bit of late. But there are some that are not rated very highly at all, and it really isn't more than a piece of decorative art on the wall if you get a patent in that country. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Um, Caleb has a question, which is, I think, a common confusion. Uh, Caleb says... The second question in answer is first one. Am I safe to file a PPA versus an LLC? Caleb, they're not one of the same. An LLC is a business structure. A corporation is a business structure. Um, there's no versus. And a provisional patent application is a form of intellectual property. And so we cover this pretty common in the, in the Q&A. And Jim, maybe you want to cover it your own way too. Um, a provisional patent, patent attorneys are very anal retentive on emphasizing this. It's not a provisional patent. It's also PPA stands for provisional patent application. It's not a patent. If you never file a full utility patent and reference the provisional, it will never become a patent. 
So it will never protect you and you can't run out and bonk everybody over the head saying you're violating my provisional patent application. And even with a patent, you can't say that. When a patent is pending, until it's issued, you can't ward anybody off and say, look, that's mine because it's not yours yet. The claims haven't been granted. Do you, do you want to expand on that at all, Jim? And people no, you, you're absolutely right, Andrew. The only thing I would add is that a patent application, even though the patent hasn't issued, still has value. And a provisional patent application has value as well. So, um, yeah, you, you definitely want to protect those assets. But you're right. Until the PTO gives you an allowance with specific claims, you don't have any exclusionary rights. Got it. Now, I, I, to defend Caleb here, he expanded on that. And I just didn't see it because sometimes you type a lot and then it shows up further. So he wrote, he was referring to filing a provisional patent application as an individual as opposed to an LLC. So sometimes our students, Caleb, I mean, this is a general YouTube, so a lot of folks are fans, InventRight fans, not necessarily students of ours, but they always ask that question, filing um, provisional patent under their own name as opposed to an LLC. And sometimes they're like, it's just one more thing to do with file an LLC. And when you're licensing, you might not want to go through that extra step yet until you get your first licensing deal on the table. So what are your thoughts about filing a PPA as an individual as opposed to an LLC? When's the right time? Should you, in your opinion, should everybody do it up front as an LLC? So two answers. One, it also depends back to our other discussion about whether you're simply going to be licensing your invention to a company and nothing more, or whether you're going to be raising capital and try to create a product. If you're raising capital, you definitely will be assigning it to a, a corporate entity of some sort. But the most important point depends upon whether there are multiple inventors. So on many patents, it's not just you, but it may be Jim and Andrew or Jim and Andrew and, and others. And what you want to do when there's multiple inventors is make sure you understand that unless all of those inventors individually assign their rights to a given corporate entity, all of those inventors each have indivisible rights. So if Jim and Andrew file a, invent something together and we file the patent, they go their separate ways. Jim assigns his rights to Jimco, raises money, creates a fortune in industry. Andrew could license that same patent to Jimco's competitors, and there's nothing Jim can do to stop them. And Andrew has full rights to that invention. So if you have multiple inventors, you need to discuss amongst your peer inventors how you want to control that. Because mm -hmm. I also will tell you, so long as Andrew, in my example, has his own independent rights, the value of my patent rights have gone down substantially because who's going to buy or license the patent for me for 100 if Andrew will sell it to them for 50. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you for bringing it up. Um, yeah, I don't think we've talked about that in the Q&A before. I've had attorneys refer to that. Um, Steve is, I think he's a little overwhelmed here, so we'll read his question. Um, I, I, we're always, I always define, um, you really want to study the micro category of your invention. So like if you got a barbecue spatula, it's overwhelming to study all the barbecue products, you know, but if you can, if you have a barbecue spatula, you should know, I always say every barbecue spatula on the market and Google image is a great way to do that. Um, and you need to know all the price points, the benefits of each one, like, oh, there's eight over here that do this and five over here do this and mine's kind of in between. You need to know that. 
And that's something when you break it down to a micro category, a barbecue spatula being a micro category, all barbecue products being a broad category that would be very hard to know everything. But with a, with a barbecue spatula, I haven't done it, but I think in three to eight hours, you could know everything that's out there, if yeah. you ask me. So that's what Steve's referring to. Um, my micro category has hundreds of thousands of products he, write, he writes. So with that definition, that's not a micro category, Steve. That's a broad category <laughs> now that I define that. How long should it take to really do good market research if infringers appear? What do the consequences look like? I have hundreds of designs that look, and you might be able to answer this part of the question, Jim, that look in a specific way, not work in a specific way. So he's got different looks. And, and I can't afford to file patents for every design. And, uh, should I still reach out to companies with a paper trail only? So if he's got like, it sounds like he has core functionality that could be covered by utility, but he's got all these different designs. So what would you say to that, Jim? Yeah, I think what you said is also right. Uh, know your category. And so if you have 10 designs on potential barbecue spatulas, are you really solving a problem that needs to be solved? Yeah. Right? Is there a design that adds some differentiator that creates value, meaning you're lowering the cost of manufacturing? It's something consumers are willing to pay a premium for. You know, unfortunately, um, there is a disease called inventoritis. And people get very excited about their inventions and their new ideas, but they can get lost in filing patents and paying lawyers when there's no there at the end of the road. And so really think about, are you solving a problem that is unique, that needs to be solved, and that people will pay you to solve? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good stuff. Um, are you okay with going like five or eight minutes sure. over since we started late a little bit so we can get to some great. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. Um, let's see what else we got here. I'm trying to stick with intellectual property since we're celebrating world IP day and we will announce who the winner is of the raffle at the end. I saw Rachel's type there. Um, okay. Let's go down to another question here. This one's from Connie. Please prioritize the first 10 countries you would file a patent in and trademark applications to protect an active pharma ingredient to make it an attractive to global big pharma companies. So again, any advice that Jim gives here, pharmaceuticals and the pharma business is a whole different world than a consumer product. And so top 10 countries it with a with a big and I guess any advice you give here, Jim, might apply to other really difficult industries yeah. like packaging too. Yeah, absolutely. And and so I could certainly give you my personal list of ten industries in, in pharmaceutical, but that really doesn't answer the question. What I would recommend anyone do is do a little Google research and ask yourself, for my product, where are the greatest sales of this product? And you can get those top ten countries. For my product, where do the manufacturers exist? Where are they making this product? And you can get those top 10 countries. And then I would pick the top 10 you want to file in based upon some combination of that list. Where is it made and where is it sold? For a pharmaceutical, you know, it's going to be the big five markets I suggested, plus India, plus a few others. But it'll depend upon, um, for any product, where that source of manufacturing is and where the sales are. 
we their their handle is Ray Ray. And I, I don't know if sometimes I don't fully understand the questions, Jim, but I'll elaborate on what I think it is. You just do the best you can. So uh, Ray Ray wrote, hello, how many PP ideas, I don't know what she means by PP, can you put into one application? Um, I guess patent pending ideas. The USPTO rep said as many as you want. So let's talk about that. Sometimes they have people, I mean, provisionals are $75 if you know how to write them yourself. And people like, can I throw five inventions in there? I'm like, well, you can throw five variations of the same invention because that 80% of filing a good provisional patent or a patent of any kind is throwing the variations, workarounds, improvements in there. And a lot of inventors don't do that. And a lot of patent attorneys don't push them to do that. And to me, that's the reason why some intellectual property professionals I've heard, I think that's a gross exaggeration, but I think there's a lot of truth to it. Like some IP professionals, I like to get your take on say 80% of patents are weak to garbage because people, the inventor, their fault, didn't think about the variations, workarounds, improvements. They give it to the attorney. They say, here's my widget, patent it. And then the attorney, right. good attorney will say, look, if you want me to do a good job, you're the inventor. You need to give me all the variations. So what are your thoughts on filing strong intellectual property? And then as a side note, throwing in unrelated inventions. I think that's a bad idea. Yeah, I, I don't think it's wise. At the provisional stage, it's not fatal because once you leave provisional to actually filing the formal application, you're going to want to divide into logical areas of invention that are distinct. And the reason you want to do that, if you don't, then the patent office is going to give you a quick rejection that says there's multiple inventions here and rewrite it and you've just wasted time. So, and even for the provisional, if you if they are unique inventions, you know, if it's a car windshield wiper versus a spatula, don't put those together because they'll also be assigned to examiners who have particular areas of expertise. And if you want a strong patent, you don't want the the exam unit that works on kitchen goods to be looking at your windshield wiper and vice versa. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. That's yeah, I agree fully. Um Stefan said, if you file a PPA and someone infringes on it during the first year, but you only found out after the PPA expired, since the pe people come up with all sorts of very creative questions in this area, but you only found out the PPA has expired, since the PPA was valid at the time of infringement, does the inventor have a case? So, I mean, what I, and I'll let Jim expand upon this. A PPA is not a patent. Again, it's a provisional patent application. So you would need to file a full utility and then later and then reference that provisional to get the that priority date for when you file that provisional so but i can tell you in the 21 years we've been doing invent right students are concerned all the time like what if they just wait till it expires and then go ahead and do it i've never had it happen in 21 years i've never had now our students are very professional with the way they conduct themselves they don't say crazy stuff give me a half million dollars up front they're looking for a royalty hey it's, I make money, you make money. So, um, and I do have students that are sometimes concerned about a company. And I say, well, watch their website, see if they come out with it. It's never happened. Um, so, but Jim, what are your thoughts on continuing to protect yourself after the PPA runs out? My thought is file the PPA the week before you're ready, start reaching out to potential licensees. You got a whole year, which is a lot of time. And then, you know, with most, not with a pharmaceutical product, but with most general consumer products, you either got a deal or you don't within that year. And if, and if someone is using similar technology, 
in the market more than a year before you file that application after the PPA has expired, then you've waited too long. Yeah. Um, and you're right. You can't enforce a PPA against anyone. So, you know, along the way, filing the PPA is a low cost. If you believe in the invention, then you will want to file that formal application that might cost two to five thousand dollars with a law firm. Sometimes it could be ten thousand dollars. But, you know, those are the hard decisions you'll have to make based upon how strongly you believe in the invention and the economic opportunity. So this is a good one for you, uh, Jim. This is from William. Um, I don't think this I don't think this is true, but you give me your take. So many issued patents are being challenged or being invalidated these days. I've heard as many as 80 percent of challenged patents. I don't know. I don't 80 percent of patents aren't challenged. So I'm not sure your, your comments. So let's just keep a more broad question. Um, what are, what is your experience with patents being challenged? Look, first of all, people don't challenge stuff unless something's making money to begin with, right? Cause it's costly. Yeah. So generally speaking, someone will not challenge your patent unless it's in response to your assertion of their infringement. And it is true that if you assert a company to be infringing your patent and there is not an ironclad case, or sometimes even when there is, they will try to challenge that patent. And it is true that, in my view, a large percentage, I think roughly about 40% of patents who are challenged in the courts fail. But I think the statistic that your uh, guest is referring to is there's also now a proceeding um, uh, called uh, related to the Patent Trial and Appeal Board where you can file back with the patent office to have them look at the patents again. And for a while, it was up to 80% of the patents that were examined again were found not valid and mm -hmm. um, terminated. So it, it is a problem. It's, it's not as extreme as it was. Um, and that really all relates to a change in the law in 2011. And we're working that through the system. Yeah. Well, and, and, when you look at those cases on patents that have been invalidated, the attorney, the patent attorney, the inventor, maybe they could have done a better job thinking about all the variations, workarounds, improvements, and creating stronger intellectual property may have prevented that to begin with. You know, and there's, there's a real lessons there. Sometimes I will hear of people who file a patent and they didn't do a very thorough search of the prior art or the other patents that came before them, and they think they're helping themselves because then the patent is more likely to issue. The opposite. And it may be true that the patent is more likely to issue because they didn't disclose or do the deeper search. But if you ever go to enforce that patent and it has value, I can assure you that the company you're seeking to enforce it against will dig deep. Mm -hmm. And if it's out there, they will find it. Yeah. And then you've really wasted all of that effort, energy, and expense for, for naught. So you need to be thorough from the beginning. But what you're saying is, I don't want me to put words in your mouth, but I, this is what I'm saying. You, the patent examiners won't always find everything. And you want to help them find stuff so that you can, they can evaluate it and approve it and then, and then give you a strong, a strong patent based on what they really found. Because you can... Hi, you, they cannot find it. They can grant it, but then it could later be challenged. But people are surprised. about well, if it was granted, it can never be challenged. But that's not true, is it? Right. You do not want to put your head in the sand. Yeah. You want a thorough search. You want to give all the information to the patent office. If you know about it, you're obligated to give it to the patent office. 
because ultimately you want claims that will hold up if you ever go to monetize them or enforce them. Yeah. Well, this is a, a unique question and, and uh, food is a different area. And Mathan said, hi, Andrew, can I license a food product? And so my answer, yes, you can license a food product. Um, but what I, the question I want to ask Jim, and he might not have experience with this, but um, what are your thoughts? Food is a very interesting area to get intellectual property and difficult quite often. It, it is, and often it's protected by trade secrets as well as patents. So I, I don't know this for certain, but I'm quite sure Pringles, for example, is a patented food product. Mm -hmm. And we all know that Coca-Cola is protected by trade secrets. Um, we've had other examples at Ocean Tomo with, uh, with food products that were protected by um, trade secrets, secret formulas. Um, remember that when you file a patent, eventually that's going to be disclosed. And so if there is an easy design around for a food product, you change some of the ingredients, it may fall outside the scope of your patent, but yet you've now given the recipe largely away. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, this is kind of a general uh, question from Scuba Steve. People have fun handles, like I said. Um, if I want, if I, and you can't really answer this, you got to answer it generally without knowing what the product is. This is what happens in these Q&As. If I wanted to repackage a product for a different industry, would I be infringing on the original IP? Um, and he's saying great stuff, referring to yours and I's answers. Well, it's going to all depend on what the IP is, what the product is. Um, but when you take something from here and you move it over here, you, you, can, you can do that with protecting it and with marketing it. And you just figure out what your point of difference is, is different industry, different application. But you'd have to look at the intellectual property and patent to, to know that for sure, right? Yeah, and give you some examples of work we've done. So we've worked at, we've looked at patents that were developed in the aerospace industry, largely composite materials and the like. And we found licensing applications for those in the automotive industry or the marine industry or consumer appliances. So the same patents covered that method of making that material, but there were many applications. That also leads to one other thought is if you owned that patent in my example, you can license that to all those industries and you have the option of licensing it exclusively on a field of use basis to one manufacturer in each of those industries, maybe getting a premium as opposed to non-exclusive across many manufacturers. So there would ultimately be a lot of strategy in using a valuable patent that spans multiple applications. Yeah. And as, as we talk about on these QAs quite frequently, you can break out licensing so many ways. It just needs to make sense. You just don't want licensees to be stepping on each other's toes. That's what I would say. But you can break it out geograph geographically. Maybe you got a high-end and a low-end version of it. Maybe you got different industries, like you do a vacuum cleaner, you license to one company for a consumer vacuum cleaner, but you retain the rights for a high-end uh, commercial janitorial vacuum cleaner, you know, because yep. they're not doing the same, these two different companies. Um, geographically, distribution channel, different versions, different price points. But the easy rule of thumb, as long as they're not stepping on each other's toes, but to license to two companies selling the exact same shelf at Walmart, that probably not, that's probably not going to work. You know, um, and people always think they're going to sell more that gym that way, but that defeats the purpose of any sort of exclusivity. And, yeah. and the reason for that, Andrew, is it's all about investment. When you're finding a partner who's your licensee, remember, they're going to have to make the investment in making the product, in marketing the product, in distributing the product. 
I mean, they're not going to necessarily want to make that investment if they know as soon as they make this popular, you're going to go out and license their competitor for the same rate they're paying and their competitor is just a me too. Yeah, yeah. So so we'll do a few more questions, but if the uh, Michelson Foundation wants to announce who the winner of the raffle is, you can type that into the chat and um, I have to figure out how, and you, if you could type in how they can claim that as well, um, that would be great because <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, maybe you give an email or something like that. Um, so Ray Ray said, thank you. I thought that was weird too, especially since $75 for each provisional patent. So yeah, you know, a provisional patents, uh, Jim, what are your thoughts about provisional patents? We think they're a great thing here at InventRight. We think they're a great tool for a grassroots inventor. Um, sometimes patent attorneys like to beat it up because they just rather take 10 grand, 15 grand a pop. And a lot of times, you know, when you're, when you're fishing and you're trying to license, there's something needs to be changed. So if you spend 15 grand and you talk to a potential licensee, well, we like this, but we're concerned about this. Then you're going to need to spend another 15 grand for another patent. You know, it's very practical tool. Uh, but Absolutely. how do you feel about it? Sometimes no, I, I completely agree, especially for the individual inventor um, filing that provisional and then going to market your invention using that provisional as your property boundary of what you own. Uh, can be very, very effective. You know, ideally, you would do that also in combination with a confidentiality agreement. There are many times that larger companies won't give that to you. Um, but if, you, if you've if you written the provisional in a complete manner, you own that and you own that timestamp of being first to file, and, and that can be very valuable. Yeah, yeah. Let's do one more. Um, I don't know, the Michelson Foundation just typed in. I can't fully see it. Oh, the winner of the raffle is Andrew Knight. Cool. Uh, we'll be sending their gift card using the email they provided. Oh, great. Thanks. So that's great. So they got a $100 gift card. That's really cool. Andrew Knight is the winner. Congratulations. Congratulations, uh, Andrew. Yeah. Yeah. It's not me, by the way. My name is Andrew Kraft. So I didn't rig it. I swear. It's another Andrew. Um, so let's see. Let's do one more question. I just can't help myself, Jim. Sorry for keeping you so long. Um, Hmm. I, uh, well, here's a question, but I don't think it's right. So we can, so this is from Dan and it's through the Michelson foundation. While doing a preliminary patent search, I discovered that there's already a PPA by a major corporation. We know what's wrong with that, Jim, right? So let's answer right. that for right. my idea in both the U S and Canada. So Jim, you want to comment? Cause that couldn't possibly be the case. Could it? Yeah. A PPA is a confidential document. So you wouldn't run across that. Um, you might find an application that's pending and it, a patent application is informative as to what others are already doing. And like I said, that's part of the research that I encourage everyone to do, which is to find out what work is being done because you'll be shocked. There are a lot of smart people trying to solve a lot of problems. And if you spend several hours looking and don't find anything, that's when maybe you have uh, something that could be of value. Well, so what, what the point Jim's making here is, um, so first of all, a provisional patent, nobody can see that. Nobody ever will. It's invisible. Nobody will ever see it. And if, if it goes past the year, it's like it never happened, has no value whatsoever, unless you file a full utility and reference that provisional and the full utility gets issued. But the other point that Jim's making here is that 
18 months, unless you petition otherwise, 18 months after you file a full utility patent, not a provisional, it will go public. And Jim, sometimes people get confused and they see a patent, what they think is a patent, but it's really just a pending patent application. And they're like, oh my God, they got all these claims, but they don't look at it to see like this hasn't been issued. This is the dream list and there hasn't been any office actions and they're freaking about what coverage they get. And I look at it, and I'm like, this isn't an issued patent. The patent office hasn't gotten to this yet. Yeah, and understanding that timeline, Andrew, is critical. So you file today a provisional. You've got now a year to make up your mind if you want to hire that lawyer and file, file that full application. Once that's filed, you've got 18 months before it's public. So you can be doing things without disclosing your invention. And you can at any time pull it back. And, and never disclose it. Yeah. But then once it's once it is disclosed after 18 months, it may be a number of years before mm -hmm. the patent office ultimately grants you some issued rights. So now we're talking two, three, four, five years from the time you had the aha moment and filed your PPA to when you've got that right to exclude. And why that's important, you have to think about, you know, if I'm filing something on an app that's sort of trendy now, in five years, is it still going to be trendy and valuable? Or will the technology have moved on? Yeah. In which case, filing a patent probably isn't the right thing to do. That's why, you know, when we guide people to license, like to, to wait for a patent to issue, to try to license it, is insanity. Because if you have to wait one to three years for it to issue, it, it might not be relevant after three years or two years. It's a fair likelihood that it may not be. Now, there's some areas that you're in where that might not be true, different technologies and things. But um, Dan, what you saw was not a provisional patent. It was probably a pending um, patent application that has not been granted yet. And you don't know what they're getting and not getting. And it's fair to say, Jim, that if they're trying to claim all these things, they're probably not going to get the vast majority of them. You don't know. It all depends. Yeah, and, and Andrew, maybe we can leave tonight with that notion that getting a patent is a negotiation with the patent office, right? You're yes. going to ask for the world. They are going to put up all the examples of things that already exist and carve you back, push you back. They'll also push back to say, well, even if we can't find other patents, you haven't sufficiently described this so that it can be reduced to practice and all of the other legal requirements that are required to meet the patent. And they'll be... Almost every patent that is filed will be rejected to start with, perhaps mm -hmm. several times mm -hmm. before it's ultimately issued. And that's where your lawyer really comes in and, and earns their money because they're experienced to have that negotiation with the patent office, either in writing, exchanged by email, or in many cases, they'll go to the patent office and sit down with the examiner, maybe the supervisor. And they'll argue your case right. as to why this is different and why you should have those claims allowed. And you can just imagine why this is now so expensive because this lawyer at an hourly rate is, um, you know, preparing responses and the patent file could end up being five, six, seven inches thick. And that's a that's a huge investment. That's a great point. And we'll we'll leave it at that because we've gone over a bit here. But um, you got to look when a patent attorney gives you a rate. Is it the rate for for filing the patent? Or is it also the rate for the office actions, as Jim's putting, like I like to put it that way in layman's terms too, the argument between your patent attorney and the office. Is that a flat rate? Is that an hourly rate? Because sometimes they'll charge you so much, like 8,000, whatever. But then when the patent office comes back to argue with them, it's like another five grand. It's another eight grand. You never know. So you need to know, does that include office actions? If not, is there an hourly rate? And patent attorneys aren't always upfront about 
what in the end, once it gets filed, once it gets granted, what are the actual costs? And sometimes people get confused on that. They're like, I thought I spent the money and now I have to come back and they spend a five grand because they're arguing back and forth at the patent office. Some attorneys will include that all bundled together. Not many, but some. And some, you know, you got to know what their hourly rate is. So really know what your cost is for a patent because people get blindsided by that all the time. And if you stop at any point, there's no salvage value. It's zero. It's over. Yeah. So you yeah. got to keep going. Yeah. One, one person wrote $1,500 per office action. It really it's going to vary tremendously. All attorneys handle it different. Some are up front. Some are a little like, well, yeah, of course, that's how it's done. It's like, well, why didn't you inform your client that's a brand new inventor? It's never filed a patent. This is how it works. That's what I think patent attorneys should do. That's my biased opinion. But um, so, yeah, if you want to if you want to type your thanks in for um, for Jim, I'd really appreciate that. Jim, thank you so much. My um, pleasure. For, you know, you're truly an expert in this area. Check out their website. Uh, oh, it's just oceantomo.com, right? Correct. Yep. Oceantomo.com. It's very interesting. Been around forever. Uh, I don't know if it was you or who spoke to my inventor association decades ago when I had one, Silicon Valley, but you guys have been around. Any company that's been around for decades, you know they're doing something right. Um, well, Andrew, thank you for the opportunity, and uh, it's great to be here on World IP Day. Yeah, and thank you to the Michelson Foundation. Congratulations, Andrew Knight, for winning the raffle. And I remind everybody to take care, keep inventing, and we will catch up with you next Monday. See you, everybody. Bye.